Let me pray for us one more time as we uh, prepare to open the word of the Lord together. God, thank you for giving us your word. Thank you for calling us out, out of our sin, out of our rebellion, into a relationship with you through Jesus Christ. And so, God, I pray that as we consider a variety of passages this morning, that you would grant us understanding. Help us, we pray, by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, I would invite you to turn to a specific passage, but unfortunately this sermon is not quite one of those sermons. And if you'll notice in your outline or in your handout, it's wide open for you to make whatever notes or drawings or, yeah, that you feel uh, appropriate. Um, This sermon was a little bit slow in coming. Sometimes they are. And I think it's just for a variety of reasons. So I didn't have the outline ready when Renetta needed to print it. But thankfully, Steve, being the masterful guy that he is, we have slides. So you can follow his slides that are there. But as we begin, I want to ask this question. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? You see, many have been trying to ask that question, trying to define exactly who Jesus is since he walked on the earth. And another question related to that is who is the Christ? Who is the Christ? You see, even when Jesus was on the earth, people questioned who he was. For, uh, for a lot of the, a lot, one of the resources that I used a lot in uh, preparing this was a book by a guy named Stephen Wellam, and the book is entitled Christ Alone. And it's part of an overall series on the five solos, which is what we're looking at. But Stephen Wellam suggests several questions that people were asking in the early days. One was, who is he who was born the son of David and the son of Abraham? We find that question around uh, Matthew chapter 1. And then who is he who announced the dawning of a kingdom in Matthew 4? After he calmed the storm with the disciples... The disciples asked, they said, who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water and they obey him? Luke um, 8.25. And then if you remember, Jesus healed a paralytic man who was let down through a roof and he told the man, before he healed him, he said, man, your sins are forgiven. And the rabbis and the scribes in Mark 27 says, why does, uh, Mark 2 verse 7, he says, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming, and then they ask the question, who can forgive sins but God alone? We might also ask, as we saw in our study in the book of John, who is it that can turn water into wine? Or is he, who is he who raises the dead as he does with Lazarus and then even raises his own life from the grave? And then Jesus asked his disciples, He said, who do people say, who do they say that the Son of Man is? And we see that in Matthew 16. And they told him all sorts of answers. And then he got specific. He says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter emphatically replied in Matthew 16, 16, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Matthew, or Peter answered correctly, but even still he had difficulty fully grasping all that that title Christ Entailed. You see that title, Jesus' first, his, his last name is not Christ, that is his title. And that title, Christ, means the anointed one. It's the same word, the same meaning that we get from the Hebrew word Messiah. But what does that mean? Can there be more than one Christ? 
there are people in our day today who would answer that question and say yes. There are some who argue that the spirit of Christ is this nebulous thing that floats around and lands on certain people and they get to be anointed as Christ for a little while and then they pass along from the scene. They might look back over history and say that, well, Moses was a Christ for a while, and and Elijah, and then Elisha, with all the things that they did, they had that power, and some of the prophets had that power. And then, of course, the spirit of Christ rested on Jesus. And then they would contend that it went, if we could go beyond and say, we could say maybe the Christ, the spirit of Christ landed on Muhammad, or Gandhi, or Mother Teresa. So is that all that Jesus Christ is or was, a temporarily blessed person called out for some 30 years of his life? Or was he more than that? Was he a good teacher or a rebellious subversive? Was he just a good human, maybe even the embodiment of all that we could be? Maybe was, is he just the best person that we all hope to attain to? Was he simply so fully enlightened that he was able to tap into the quantum realm and do the miracles that he was able to do? Furthermore, what, is his, what was his role? Why did he live? Is he just a good example? We won't have time this morning to address all of those questions, but I think those are some of the questions that people around us are asking about this guy, Jesus Christ. And today we're going to look at a bit of what the Bible has to say about it. But you see, in the years leading up to the Reformation, the church had begun to teach that salvation was available in Jesus Christ only if it was obtained by certain sacraments. You could be saved by the blood of Jesus Christ if you did X, Y, Z. And the Reformers came along and said, no, 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 no. Salvation is available through Christ alone. Christ is sufficient. There was an element of faith in the, according to the church, but there were sacraments that also needed to be fulfilled. But based on the foundation of Scripture alone that we studied last week, the inspired and inerrant authority for the church, the Reformers began to argue that salvation was in Christ alone, or solus Christus. Stephen Wellam, in, in his book, said, Solus Christus stands at the center of the, of the other four solas connecting them into a coherent theological system by which the reformers declared the glory of God. Well, in some ways, this sermon should be the middle of the five, sermon three instead of number two. It sort of makes sense to look at it more like a foundation that's being laid. We, we laid the foundation last week of, of Scripture alone, that our authority, Scripture alone is our sole authority. Now we have our salvation based on Christ alone. Next week we're going to consider that is through faith alone that we receive that salvation, not by works. And then we're going to see that it's by the grace of God alone and finally for the glory of God alone. So as we reflect on a bit of this today, we're going to look at Scripture to help us understand two primary things. And these are the main points in the outline if you want to write this down in this way. We're going to look at the identity of Christ and the ministry of Christ, leading us finally to, our appropriate, to an appropriate response. So let's begin by considering the identity of Christ. You see, Scripture reveals that Jesus is so much more than simply a good man or a good teacher or a good leader. One of the most common titles that we see used of Jesus is that of son. 
But he's not just any son. He is, first of all, the eternal son. We just looked at that in celebrating Christmas. We recognize that Jesus was born of a woman in the, announcement that of, uh, in the announcement to Mary that she would bear this child, that she would bear Jesus. The angel told her, Luke 1, 35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Christmas acknowledges his incarnation, or as some would say, his enfleshment, his taking on of human flesh. Jesus did not become a son at his birth. He has been the son since eternity past. In the book of Romans, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, the apostle Paul helps us understand this a little bit more. Actually, he, he provides a little bit of insight. Listen to what he says in Romans 1, 1 to 4. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his holy prophets, through his prophets in the holy scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Wellam comments that this passage teaches of the Son's preexistence, which, is, which establishes his deity. He wasn't just a special human. He has existed as the Son, God the Son, since eternity past. And there are some nuances of Greek grammar and dependencies that get a bit academic, but notice that it's concerning his son. It seems like when you read that passage closely, when you read that section closely, you see that the son already was there before it was prophesied about that David would have a descendant. And so you have these, these, this sort of odd combination in Jesus Christ. Thomas Schreiner explains, the one who existed eternally as the son was appointed as son of God in power, as the son of David. In other words, the son reigned with the father from all eternity, but as a result of his incarnation and atoning work, he was appointed to be the son of God as one who is now both God and man. But as the eternal son of God, Jesus has had a role in the universe since before the beginning of time. It, Colossians 1 says this most beautifully, and feel free to turn there if you'd like, or you can look at it on the screen, but Colossians 1, 15 to 20 says, He, meaning Jesus Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven making peace by the blood of, this, of his cross. For those of us who've grown up in the church, this is nothing new. We've heard about Jesus, the eternal son, the son of God forever. And we've, we've grown up learning about it. Jesus walked on earth for roughly 30 years, but being the second person of the Trinity, he was also fully divine. He existed for eternity past and is truly the eternal son 
of God. But secondly, Jesus is the perfect son of man. He was human. He was like us in every way. He had feelings. He had physical attributes. He had skin. He had a soul. He, was, he looked and breathed and ran and walked and did things just like us, except without sin. And in many ways, the whole book of Hebrews is an argument that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the perfect Son of Man, is better than all other religious conventions we could come up with. Look at these opening verses in, in Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Again, Stephen Wellham writes, God the Son becomes man to fulfill God's original intention for humanity. Think about that. All that God intended, and we're going to see this in a few moments, but all that God intended in the garden, that fellowship, that communion with him, we see perfectly embodied, perfectly represented in Jesus Christ. And yet, all that he intended in fellowship in the garden was torn apart by the rebellion of Adam and Eve, resulting in punishment from sin, punishment and separation from, of God from man. And with Jesus, God the Son becoming flesh, he embodies all that was intended at creation. He demonstrates that right and perfect fellowship and relationship with the Father. He models God's characteristics to us. And yet at the same time, he also identifies with us. Again, Wellam talks about the incarnation. He says, in the incarnation, Christ identifies with us. The eternal Son becomes like us, and he does so to act for us. Solidarity is not enough, as vital as it is, since solidarity, solidarity is not itself atonement, only its prerequisite. In other words, he had to be like us in order to heal us, in order to atone for us. But Christ must identify with us in order to die for us as a new covenant representative and substitute. So we briefly wrestle with the identity of Christ and, and essentially being fully the, the, the eternal Son of God and the perfect Son of Man, Jesus carries two attributes. And, and for, for centuries, the church has agreed on this. There's been a lot of debates, but around the time of the Reformation, all, all churches taught that Jesus Christ was fully God and fully man. And that was settled history. But let's look briefly at his ministry, how exactly he works that out. You see, Jesus did many things when he walked on earth. He was a teacher. He was a healer. He was a friend. He was a counselor. When people like John Calvin and many others had divided his ministry into three categories or offices. And first of all, we see Jesus has the office of prophet or revealer. 
We see this a bit in John 1, but as the role of prophet, in, in the role of a prophet, an Old Testament prophet would speak on behalf of God to the people. He represents God to the people. He helps people understand God's will that they should live it out. The prophets would speak on behalf of God. Look at what John writes in the opening verses of his gospel. Let's see briefly how Christ fulfills that. John 1, 1 to 5, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He, meaning Christ, or Jesus, was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that has been made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. You see, just as a prophet would speak the words of God, so too Jesus Christ is that representation. He is that verbal expression, that living expression of, of God to the world. And, he, and when you think about it, think about how God created the universe. Genesis tells us that God spoke, and it was. Jesus, as the word, was the means, I think, by which God spoke the world into the universe, into existence. All things were made through him. And yet as the incarnate son, he reveals even more. As, it, as John writes, in him was life and that life was the light of man. Jesus reveals God's character and his attributes, his love and mercy, his grace and forgiveness. But he also reveals and embodies the wrath of God and his justice. Jesus reveals God's desire for us, for how we should live. I mean, in fact, just think through some of what is in the, the, the Sermon on the Mount. If you flip over real briefly to Matthew chapter 5 through 7, you, you'll see some of these. I, and it, it, it's fascinating to, to listen to all these things that Jesus brings up in this brief sermon because he talks about certain internal characteristics, humility, peace, patience, meekness, but then he talks about the fact of, of obedience, what it means to be truly obedient to God. Are we just obeying the law because it's random and out there? How do we deal with anger? Jesus addressed that, how we should do, how do we deal with lust or divorce or taking oaths or getting back, oh man, that's a good one, getting back at one another. But Jesus told us how exactly we should deal with Retaliation when someone has wronged us. How we should be generous. How we should pray. How we should think about things of this world. Jesus reveals God's intention for us. In his book, Christ the, Christ's Ministry in the Christian, which uh, is a, it's a really good book. It's by a guy named Professor uh, Gerhard Wise. There's a few copies of this. It's actually really hard to get this. So if you really want a deep dive read in the offices of Jesus Christ, grab it. There are four out there. But this guy Weiss goes through. It was translated from Dutch into English, so some of the language might seem a little weird. He says, regarding this first office of prophet, the work of the Lord Jesus Christ within us as prophet is to instruct us. He causes the word of God to have such a powerful effect on the heart and to work so efficaciously in the heart that we get an entirely different perspective of God as far as his being, attributes, revelation, and works are concerned. You see, with the help of the Holy Spirit, 
and the word of God, Jesus reveals our fallenness, just like a good prophet would. He points out, hey, you're doing this wrong. This is what God intends, so come over here and do it this way. Repent. But he also reveals the means of redemption and continues to walk with us, leading us toward our sanctification and for our growth in holiness. He's helping us become more like him. But in addition to having that office of, of prophet, he has the office, Jesus has the office of priest or, or mediator. Thinking again back to the Old Testament sacrificial system, the priests would, would stand there before the people and they would mediate a relationship between humanity and God and God and humanity. And they would offer sacrifices. It wasn't just that people could, could t- cut up their animal and put it on the altar themselves. The priests had to be a part of that. And then on this very special day, on the Day of Atonement, the, the priest would go in and offer a sacrifice for himself because he's a fallen human being as well. He's mired in sin, but he can't be sin-laden when he goes and offers a sacrifice for the people. So he would offer his own sacrifice, and then he would take the sacrifice of the whole congregation, a ram, and offer it before the Lord one day of the year in order to atone for all of the sins, to cover all of the sins. And it was this role that a, a priest, an Old Testament priest, would do over and over again. There's those daily and weekly sacrifices, and then there's this big annual sacrifice. And it was, I think it was designed to be this constant reminder that we have this sinful condition, that we have this sinful problem. And yet, as the writer of Hebrews says, the blood of bulls and goats was never meant to forgive sin. It was designed to Put it off. But when it comes to Christ, we see in Hebrews 4, uh, 14 to 16, it says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are and yet is without sin. Let us with confidence Draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. He is the true and only mediator between God and humanity. And rather than offering the blood of bulls and goats in mediation, Jesus offered his own perfect blood as a sacrifice, his perfect life. And what's more is it's not temporary. Jesus doesn't have to die over and over and over again. He did it once. He covered all the sins that happened before him. And in that moment, he covered all the sins that would happen for for eternity future. In that one moment on the cross. Not only was his word finished on the cross, but he, he continues that role in our lives today. You see, Jesus is continuing to work as a mediator in our lives. Consider what 1 John 2, 1 to 2 says. He says, my children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. As I mentioned before, during the Reformation, this is one place where the church and the reformers differed on Jesus Christ. You see, while they agreed on the identity of Christ and the work of Christ, the church acted as a mediator to the mediator. 
You have to come through the church to get this grace from Jesus Christ. And yet the reformer said, no, it is Christ alone. We might learn about it through the church, but it's not mediated by the church. You don't need an earthly priest. We have a heavenly priest in Jesus Christ. It is something that we receive by faith. So we've seen Jesus as the revealing prophet and the mediating priest. Finally, Scripture generally reveals that Jesus Christ is a king. He is a ruler. There were several prophecies in the Old Testament that pointed to the Messiah being a king and sitting on a throne. In fact, so many people, when when Jesus walked on the earth, they wanted him to inaugurate an earthly kingdom. They wanted him to take over. They wanted him to overthrow Rome. They wanted him to be the eternal king on the throne in Jerusalem and to rule and reign from there. And yet, over the course of his ministry, Jesus said, yes, my kingdom will reign and it will be eternal, but it's not going to be the kind of kingdom that you want. It's not going to be limited to one small geographic region the size of New Jersey. It's a global kingdom that spans every nation, tribe, and tongue. When Jesus ascended after his resurrection, it's as though he rose to his rightful place in the throne room of God. He is seated there, finished, completely finished, accomplished his work. He sits there as victor. And as people have been purchased, redeemed by his blood, we now have a new identity, a new citizenship, a new spiritual passport, you could say. And it says kingdom of heaven. We are his. But yet being fallen human beings like we are, we like to be our own king. We like to be in charge. And I think this is something we especially have to run into here in America, this rugged individualism. I want to make my choices. I want to do things my way. And yet, and so we willfully resist his reign in our lives. Weiss, in in his book, suggests that as king, Jesus breaks our resistance to him. He doesn't do it by force, because that's not the kind of king he is. He's not the kind that's just going to bowl over us. But he does so by his irresistible grace. He's, he says, look at what I've done for you. I've taken your sin on me. I didn't deserve it. I want you to walk with me. So with Christ revealing God to us, mediating our relationship with God, and now acting as our sovereign ruler, we must finally consider what is our appropriate response to Christ. Well, I'm again, summarizes this. He says, Christ's threefold work demonstrates how sin ruined our knowledge of God, the prophet role, the righteousness of our desires and deeds as priest, and our submission and obedience to the Lord as king. So in order to understand this, let's, let's go back just real briefly. Let's do a brief history lesson. You see, when God created the world, he had this intention in creation, this perfect fellowship. He longed for, he he created his world in order to bring glory to himself. And it's not some self-serving thing. It's just right. Any good creator, if you create a piece of art, you're doing that to express something of beauty, but you're expressing something of yourself. So all creation does things to proclaim the glory of God. And yet when he created the world, he intended to have communion or fellowship with humanity 
It, was, it seemed like it was his desire to allow us to walk with him, as it says in Genesis 3, in the cool of the day. Imagine what that would be like. Hey, God, how's it going? And the Bible tells us about Enoch, one of my favorite guys that I would love to have a conversation with. He walked with God, and then he was no more. And in Christ, we see a perfect example of his relationship with the Father. N.T. Wright notes is this, that Jesus has, from eternity, held the same relation to the Father that humanity, from its creation, had been intended to bear. What God intended for us, Jesus embodies, Jesus demonstrates, Jesus shows us that example. But why don't we have that relationship? Why don't we have that perfect fellowship? And really it comes down to humanity's corruption of creation, the stain of sin. Our world is messed up by it. Even as believers who've been forgiven, who've been cleansed by Jesus Christ, we are constantly hindered by it. Because while we have these earth dirt bags, if you will, on our bodies, covering our souls, we battle between the flesh and the spirit. We wrestle with those desires. I want it my way. Oh, I want that thing. Coveting, lusting, greed, anger, retribution. You see, when Adam and Eve rebelled in the garden, they corrupted God's good creation and plan. And yet God, being, in, being the holy God that he is, could not fellowship with sin-stained humanity. And in his, and his holiness set him apart. And his justice demanded a right payment for sin. And yet from the beginning, God has had a covenantal plan. God's covenantal plan. You see, a covenant, if we think about it, a covenant was a relationship oftentimes between two rulers or two kings, two monarchs. And typically, what, one thing I learned is that a, a greater monarch would sit sort of in authority over this covenant. The lesser monarch would then commit himself or herself to the terms of this covenant. But the, what we see with God is that it's the other way around. Constantly throughout creation, God is covenanting himself. God the greater is covenanting himself with the lesser. God made a covenant with Abraham, said, I will bless you and I will make your name great. I will bless all nations through you. God made a covenant with Noah. God made a covenant with, with the people of Israel through Moses. And, and so constantly God is doing it the other way, not the greater being, you know, he is greater, but he's, he's not allowing the lesser to enter into covenant. It's God who is choosing as the greater to be Subject to his own word, to his own promise, to his own covenant. And yet in order to maintain perfect holiness and justice, he instituted those animal sacrifices as a reminder of people's sin. Sure, it set aside, it assuaged God's wrath for a time, but it never fully satisfied his justice and his holiness. And so in order to accomplish that, in order to accomplish what the law, his good law, required. There had to be a full payment. And so that's where Jesus Christ came in. And the, the big theological word that we use for that is called penal substitutionary atonement. And this is, this is a, a big word, but let me kind of explain this. Penal refers to the sorry state of the human race in Adam in which we stand under God's judgment and the penalty of death. Wellam writes that. 
We see this in, in the Apostle Paul, Romans 3.23, for all, none of us are exempt from that, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And because of that sin, we all deserve death, Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. But then Wellam continues with the next word. Substitution refers to the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ who acts on our behalf in his death on a cross. Again, Paul helps us understand this. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin, him meaning Jesus Christ, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And then, according to the Lexham Bible Dictionary, atonement is the means of reconciliation between God and people. Penal, the just judgment that we deserve, was substituted, placed on Jesus Christ so that we could be atoned for. Some people would call this at-one-ment. We are now reunited with God in perfect fellowship because the just wrath of our sin has been paid for in him. So let me close with a couple of thoughts. How do, we, how do we apply all this? How do we kind of pull it down, kind of, if you will, the so what of all of this? Well, beloved, if you're a follower of Christ, I want to just encourage you to delight in Christ alone as he continues to work in your life because his work as prophet didn't stop when he ascended. He continues to work as prophet in your life today. So pay attention to what Jesus reveals to us through his word. And that Holy Spirit, that prompting, that still small voice that says, ah, we need to adjust this. Let's change this. But yet secondly, we rest in the confidence of knowing that Christ has secured your relationship with God as priest, he has done it. It doesn't require performance from you. When you mess up, he's got it. When you screw up, he's got it. He's, he's, John told us he's our advocate. He's, he's there before the throne of God. He's, he's essentially saying, hey, yeah, when, when Zach messed up, I've got him. Zach's covered. No need to punish him eternally for that. When, when Zoe messed up, yeah, Zoe, uh, she screwed up, but I've covered that. I'm there for all eternity. Jesus Christ is continuing to mediate on behalf of, of you and me before God the Father. But finally, as king, we need to surrender to his way as Lord. We serve his kingdom. That means that when our Society, when our nation would tell us, oh, you need to act a certain way, you need to accept certain things, you need to believe certain things, we could say, no, 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 no. We don't have to be rude about it, but, but we can embody all that God has called us to. You see, for instance, think about what does it mean to be this, this, the kingdom of heaven as a student at Poolsville High School or John Poole Middle School or Hood College? or Montgomery College. What does it mean to be a student and a kingdom of God citizen? Jesus Christ helps us as we read his word, as we digest it and meditate and apply it. What does it mean to be a husband or a father who is guided by, superseded by King Jesus? He's called us to a higher standard. What does it mean to be a mother 
who is a mother in the kingdom of God. A sister, brother, friend. We could look at all these different roles in our lives. I think being Jesus being our king means that everything is subject to him. Our finances, our time, our attention, our desires, our affections, they're all subject to him. And yet he's not pulling them. He's not taking them away. Sometimes he will. If we're so far in willful rebellion, he may just say, no, you can't have that for now. But yet as we gradually yield our lives to his kingship, oh man, what glory he gets. I think our world would be a completely better place if we did. But let me just encourage you too, friend, if you're far from God, if you're still checking all this out, if you still don't quite understand all that Christ is, all that this church stuff is, then let me just encourage you. Jesus stood in your place. He took your sin on his body on that tree. It's not dependent upon your performance. We can do all the good things we want. It's not going to win favor with God because all those good deeds are still stained by sin until Jesus Christ redeems you. So by faith, let me encourage you, trust solely in his grace and mercy and what he has done on the cross. And and if you don't understand that, if you want to talk more about it, let me know. I'd love to grab a cup of coffee with you or sit down and we can talk about it. But let me close with something that was written Shortly on the tail end of the Reformation, this is Heidelberg Catechism. This is the very first question of that catechism. In fact, we've already sung about it. But the first question says this, What is thy only comfort in life and in death? And the answer, that I, with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but I belong to Christ, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sins and redeemed me from the power of the devil so and so preserves me that without the will of my Father in heaven, not a hair can fall from my head. Yea, that all things must work together for my salvation. Wherefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready henceforth to live unto him. Let's pray. God, we do thank you so much for all that you've accomplished through Christ alone. Thank you for the life that we have in him. Thank you for the hope that we have because of his perfect sacrifice. Jesus, thank you for all that you gave up and won for us. I pray that you would help us to walk daily in that knowledge of you being fully sufficient. Lord, it's not our performance that's going to keep us in a relationship with you. You have secured that. You have sealed that, even as we read from Ephesians earlier. Lord, help us to rest and trust, fully confident in what you've done for us. For this, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.